starting on Tuesday, every American can visit healthcare.gov to find out what's called the insurance marketplace for your state. Now, what, this is real simple. It's a website where you can compare and purchase affordable health insurance plans side by side, the same way you shop for a plane ticket on Kayak, same way you shop for a TV on Amazon. You just go on and you start looking, and here are all the options. Yeah, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, you've heard us talk about the commodification and marketization of everything, but what better example is there than the President of the United States celebrating the fact that we can shop for healthcare? And, well, we did. We went on healthcare.gov, and a quick browse told us two things. First, our healthcare system is in shambles. And second, the government doesn't care about us, as if we didn't already know that. But in all seriousness, the sheer tonnage of information on that website is absolutely incredible. I mean, every contingency is listed. What to do if you had a plan with premium tax credits or without premium tax credits? If you had job-based health insurance? If you had more than one health coverage status? How much you'll have to pay if you don't purchase health insurance? And don't worry, they'll find you for that. There's more info if you've recently had a baby, if you're under 30, or if you're self-employed. And, you know, to their credit, they've kindly extended the deadline for enrolling in marketplace health coverage through August 15th because of difficulties associated with the pandemic. I've actually got the webpage open right now. It says right on the front page, more people than ever before qualify for help paying for health coverage, even those who weren't eligible in the past. To me, that sounds like more people than ever can afford health care. If that doesn't scream we care about you, then I don't really know what does. It's kind of obvious by now, but for this episode, we'll be talking about the healthcare system and how it's evolved along with both neoliberalism and digital technology. More specifically, we set out to discover just how much neoliberalism has infiltrated the healthcare system and how this impacts citizens. Essentially, the main argument here is that neoliberalism sucks. Talking about politics of austerity or corporations, it's a little more on the abstract side. We've even touched on pending environmental disasters, but for so many people, that's a long ways out. Of course, these conversations are absolutely crucial, but now we're talking about the ways in which neoliberalism directly touches the lives of every single person in America and around the world. Healthcare is a need. It's a right, and the profit drive of market logics is destroying our ability to access those services, to access life-saving technologies, procedures, and professionals. Only once we have a solid understanding of what's happening now can we begin to imagine the future. Whether or not it's a future dominated by capitalism, well, we'll get into that later. Welcome to Principium. I'm Ryan. I'm Ilana. And I'm Andrea. In this podcast, we're capturing the voices in the spirit of our generation, who we are and what we care about. We're searching for the origins of our problems that we face right now in hopes to make a brighter future. The desire to maintain a robust market at all costs is probably the greatest explanation for why healthcare reform has been such a struggle in the U.S. Yale professor and American political scientist Jacob Hacker lends insight on this topic questioning why, after a century of defeat, healthcare reform finally passed in 2010. Harnessing the power of comparative politics, Hacker compares health reform initiatives under Clinton in 1993 and 94 versus Obama in 2009 and 2010. In employing a most similar systems design method, he isolates two key independent variables that explain why Obama was successful where Clinton was not. First, the economic downturn in the early 90s was far less severe than the Great Recession. The 2008 crisis was much more expansive, it affected many, many more families. And Hacker notes that Americans generally favor healthcare reform in times of uncertainty, and, you know, we've had a lot of those. Uh, so, as a result of the recession in 2008, there was more public pressure for health reform. Second, the battlefield structured by interest groups under Obama was more favorable. At the heart of this shift was the financial reality. Fewer Americans with health insurance due to the recession meant fewer paying patients. In turn, profits for doctors, hospitals, drug companies, they were going down. 
their respective representative groups recognized that the government was the only entity capable of mandating health coverage, which would, of course, boost corporation profits. This was a power the interest groups wanted to harness, so they began lobbying for healthcare reform. This industry-backed push for change was largely just quid pro quo, you know, accepting greater regulation in exchange for greater profits. It's also consistent with the dramatic increase in lobbying spending over the previous 15 years. And this just goes to show how powerful profit motives are, getting private companies to accept public regulation. What does the healthcare system look like after the reform then? Healthcare in the U.S. is a pretty chaotic mix of mainly for-profit private health insurance companies, although public coverage is provided through Medicare and Medicaid, both means-tested programs provided to select demographics. In 2018, nearly 28 million people did not have health insurance at any point during the year. The U.S. stands alone as the only advanced industrialized nation without universal health coverage, and is likely one of the least, if not the least, regulated systems in the world. In the Journal of Global Fault Lines, Timothy Mellish, a student of international business, law, and politics at Keele University, partners with his colleagues Natalie Lesmore and Ahmed Shabazz to examine the pandemic responses of the U.S. and the U.K. with that of Germany and South Korea in a comparative study. They pull information from government documents and risk assessment reports to analyze the pandemic conditions in each of the four case studies, and then they later employ economic theory to underpin their main argument. Ultimately, they conclude that the U.S. and U.K. significantly underperform when compared to Germany and South Korea, given the decades of neoliberal decay of healthcare services. Vicente Navarro, professor of health and public policy at John Hopkins University, would concur with the Mellish study. In a similarly structured comparative study, Navarro cites a WHO report commissioned to compare the relationship between a country's public services and its ability to care for the population. The conditions favoring a positive response included strong health and social services, a comprehensive strategy for handling the epidemic, the ability to detect an infected individual, and the capacity to care for those who have the disease. So, according to these criteria, South Korea was among the best-ranked countries. A video detailing South Korea's success describes the advanced methods used to keep citizens safe. Take a listen. If they find somebody who's, uh, who turned out to be infected, then they backtrace these uh, people's movements. Various district offices will send out text messages with the dates and the places that they've been to. And if you find yourself having been to these places around the same time as the infected people, then you are advised to come to the authorities and uh, get tested. So this particular response is unique not only for its inclusion of a digital component, but also for its reliance upon citizens. So while there is an aspect of individual responsibility here, you know, the willingness to go and actually get tested, the government is actively working to maintain the safety of its citizens through methods that are largely available. On the flip side, though, uh, not all countries make use of their resources. Poor conditions and failure to adhere to those four factors for a comprehensive response tended to be more pronounced in countries that adopted neoliberal measures, including the U.S. and the U.K. Misplaced and misused resources are a pretty common theme in neoliberalism, is what I'm seeing. But you know, neoliberalism is a global phenomenon. It affects probably every democratic, industrialized nation in the world. So what are these studies missing? Well, the Mellish and Navarro studies both pin neoliberalism as the main driver of poor COVID responses. So in the context of healthcare, they're right, and it makes sense to blame neoliberalism. But you do raise a good point, Ryan. It's much more complex than the two studies make it seem. It's one thing to say that you know, these countries operate under neoliberalism and they have bad healthcare systems, therefore we can conclude causation, right? But it makes much more sense to look at just how impactful neoliberalism has been in those countries and to consider the degree of institutionalization that it's undergone. Case in point, though Germany operates with a universal coverage plan, insurance providers are still largely private and depending on who they're insured through, German citizens receive differing standards of care. 
So yes, their healthcare system does outperform the healthcare system in the U.S., but this doesn't indicate that Germany is not plagued by the same neoliberal disease as we are. So what I'm hearing is that neoliberalism is interacting with different healthcare systems in different countries in different ways. Essentially, yeah. If neoliberalism is present in all of the case studies for the Mellish and Navarro papers, it can't by itself be the explanatory variable. If we were to approach this topic from a different angle, we could get a more clear-cut vision of what might be happening. So a brief look into political economy can give us an alternative model to categorizing countries. Gasta Esping Anderson is a sociologist affiliated with the European University Institute. In his seminal book, The Three Worlds of Welfare Capitalism, he defines what constitutes a welfare state, critiques previous approaches to understanding them, and respecifies types of welfare states. He does so by grouping them according to their levels of decommodification, or the degree to which citizens can freely and without potential loss of job, income, or welfare opt out of work. So based on levels of decommodification, he clusters welfare states by regime type. The U.S. is a primary example of a highly commodified regime. Entitlements cater to low-income state dependence, progress of reform has been waylaid by the traditional work ethic norm, and entitlements are highly associated with stigma. The state essentially encourages, or, or I guess forces, labor market participation by making it a prerequisite for welfare or any kind of state help. I, I think I'm following you, but I need some clarification as to how this perspective accounts for what we were missing in the earlier two studies, the, uh, the Mellish and Navarro pieces. Within these three regime types that Esping Anderson outlines, we might argue that neoliberalism is institutionalized or valued more or less in different countries. So in the U.S., as we've been arguing, neoliberalism is essentially a worldview in itself. It's central to nearly every aspect of life, so it'll clearly be more influential here in terms of healthcare than it might be, for example, in Norway, which is a much, much less commodified healthcare system. So Esping-Anderson's model basically helps us to make distinctions between levels of commodification in different countries. Cool, cool. Thank you for clearing that up. You know, I, I want to kind of tie this back to episode two, because it's really interesting to think about the healthcare industry and, and keyword on, on industry, you know, making it into a, a business, a company, a corporation of some kind. So Andrea, you prefaced how corporations prey on the economic insecurity of employees in order to reinforce dependence. How is that relevant to the healthcare system in Esping Anderson's liberal welfare regime type, the highly commodified system? Right. So let's uh, rewind a little bit then uh, in terms of time periods. The commercialization of medicine has been a common practice uh, since Reagan in the 1980s. And that has been a trend that has continued under H.W. Bush, Clinton, W. Bush, Obama, and especially Trump. Over the past four years, we've seen a staggeringly low level of social protection of the lower classes. More than 50% of workers earn salaries insufficient for providing economic security. And along those lines, there's a disturbing lack of worker protections, including no mandated sick days. Policies as these leave workers at serious risk. In terms of healthcare, about 50% of the U.S. population receives employer-sponsored insurance, which is what we talked about in the last episode. Lose your job, lose your insurance. This drive to maintain market participation has caused immeasurable damage during COVID-19. In 2020, last year, 7.7 million workers lost their jobs with employer-sponsored insurance. They and their 6.9 million dependents were directly affected by the commodification of health services. This makes absolutely no sense to me. We're in the middle of a pandemic, one that we were clearly not ready for, you'd think that we would do something about this, right? Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. In scholarly discussions on COVID, there was this big talk about a crossroads. Early on, many people viewed COVID in a positive light as, you know, an opportunity to finally reassess our lackluster healthcare system and remedy some of the social injustices that have systematically plagued Black and Brown Americans for far too long. COVID was a window of opportunity. 
Judith Butler describes his hope. When it would appear the lockdown, the shutdown, the sheltering in place gave rise to a surprising form of optimism. After all, if the world was shutting down, that meant that capitalism was shutting down. If the world was shutting down, then all of its radical inequalities were shutting down as well. Arundhati Roy spoke poetically of a portal opening onto a different future. Well, it appears that we have instead, more than ever, embraced all the evils of neoliberalism. Neoliberalism has been in vogue since the 80s, but with digital technology, we've seen the character of neoliberalism drastically altered in positive ways and in negative ways. We, we talked about this before. So it makes sense to incorporate this aspect into our discussion on, on COVID. So I pose the question to you ladies, what digital technologies have been incorporated into medical care and how well has this been done? I have a study in response to that. Serena Kassara is an MD and medical researcher. She received her degree from the University of California, San Francisco, and she is now the director of women's health at the West Oakland Health Center. Along with her fellow researchers, Andrea Jonas and Kevin Schulman, she argues that we are waking up to the limitations of the healthcare system and conclude that we need to embrace the digital revolution within our current structure in order to face the ongoing pandemic. They note that most other sectors of society, including small businesses and educational institutions, made abrupt digital transitions in order to continue functioning. I think of Zoom as one big example. In contrast, the healthcare system in the U.S. remains an analog system, largely supported by brick-and-mortar visits. Through various data collection methods, including surveys, they found that in 2019, 38% of health provider company CEOs reported having no digital component in their overall strategic plan. Right, and that's really strange because some digital technology options have been around for years. Telemedicine has been a possibility for decades, but it and other remote service options show poor market penetration. Uh, largely because they're resisted by corporations and health-based institutions. Why? What's the deal with that? According to the Kisara study, most of the opposition comes from a lack of infrastructure for payment structures. Corporations and interest groups lobbying on behalf of hospitals, doctors, and insurance providers are concerned that a digital revolution in healthcare means lost profits. Oh, it comes down to money. Okay, I, I wasn't expecting that one. Um, but I don't, I don't really get it. How would digital technology being implemented in healthcare mean lost profits? I, I, I can think of a lot of examples where big markets were created or expanded because consumers seem to really love kind of this accessible technology that makes things really easy to do. Right. And if you're thinking about it from a strategic perspective, it would be in a business's best interest to be planning ahead planning for this kind of technological change. This is kind of an educated guess, though, in response to your question. We know that corporations function off the capital they incur from their investors, not from a public source of wealth like the government, which manages budgets for public education, because, Ilana, we talked about schools. Maybe implementing new technology in healthcare practices is just too costly, or maybe not a worthy investment for these um, healthcare businesses. Small businesses don't have as much ground to cover, so that could be a reason it's easier for small organizations or government institutions to input tech, unlike big businesses. True, and, and I also think that something to consider here from the corporation's perspective is that something like telemedicine is likely to be far more cost-efficient for the patient. It reduces the administrative costs that are associated with visiting and actually physical doctor's office. Um, and, you know, I, I read somewhere that the administrative costs for U.S. hospital visits average about 20% of the total bill, which is U.S. healthcare bills are, are enormous. And, and if you can reduce that 20% down to 5%, that's a lot of lost money for the hospital, for insurance, for doctor salaries, maybe, if, if you total all that up over time. So... I guess the corporation's strategy here is resist change, let the cost of care go up, and then profit from that over time, which is 
really short-sighted, but I think that's kind of a mirror of late-stage capitalism in general. Like, it's going to collapse eventually. Why aren't we planning ahead? I have no idea. Well, from all this, and I think we know the answer to why all this is happening, this is pretty much just another demonstration of how neoliberal values are hard at work prioritizing money over everything else. Okay, well, then suppose we were able to overcome these neoliberal barriers. What does a digital revolution look like in healthcare? What positive transformations can we foresee? Well, beyond telemedicine, like you mentioned, there's a lot of room for AI in medicine to improve health outcomes. In terms of preventative or proactive measures, AI could aid in advanced disease scanning, in uh, drug development, in pharmacology. Retroactively, it could design courses of treatment with precision medicine and revolutionize surgical procedures. On a more general scale, digitization just has the capacity to increase the efficiency and the effectiveness of the healthcare system to the benefit of the patient by aiding in administrative processes and doing things like tearing down cultural and language barriers between patient and practitioner. We just have to proceed with caution, keeping in mind that AI and big data collection methods aren't perfect. A lot of the times, they include biases that tend to follow along racial and gendered lines. It's also important to note that we don't need to wait for the future either, though. Some of these positive changes are already happening. The French carte vitale is a card system that stores patient data. Give it to your healthcare provider. They look you up in the system and can see all of your medical history. In a similar design, Taiwan created a smart card with essentially the same functions. Their payment system is also digitized. Medical bills are sent straight to the government insurance office and are paid automatically, which drastically reduces administrative costs. The point is, a digital revolution is possible already. Oh, definitely. Um, Estonia is another great example of incorporating technology into healthcare practices. Estonia's infrastructure is pretty much completely digital, and the goal is efficiency and equality, something that would be awesome to see in healthcare, especially in the U.S. In aid of this goal, one of the services offered is eAmbulance, keyed onto the X-Road program, which links servers containing citizen information, all decentralized. This means that paramedics have access to patient information, which is potentially life-saving, but you don't run the risk of having your data stolen. So... Especially in the context of COVID-19 with the way the disease transmits and everything. These sound like really valuable changes. But a lot of the vocabulary here, you know, efficiency, reducing costs, it's all very reminiscent of what Ryan discussed in episode one, uh, a neoliberal vocabulary. So it sounds like these changes are being promoted in the name of neoliberalism. So does that really matter? I mean, if these changes are going to have a positive impact on patients, does it ultimately matter what's driving them? You're exactly right. This reminds me of the discussion we had about whether or not authenticity matters when corporations take social justice stances. Dang, how did this question get even more difficult? Well, I think when it comes to something that every human will need, I think the intention has probably more impact than, you know, just kind of like social justice marketing in the name of your corporation. But I, I think it's probably skewed more in the long run. I feel like maybe at first, neoliberalism is very good at branding and, and convincing people. But after a while, if something is not set up with humans in mind, it's set up with profit generation in mind, you're probably going to get to a point when humans aren't benefiting from it anymore. Yeah, Ryan, this question made me think about the authenticity discussion we had last episode, too. Um, another thought I had was when we are talking about healthcare, we are talking about people's lives. AI tracking technologies, for one, have helped countries monitor the spread of COVID during the pandemic, which we touched on last episode. And that can help take proactive and preventative steps in mitigating further spread of the virus. So, as we discussed with corporations, if this is benefiting people on a mass scale in important areas of life, because our health is very important, perhaps the reasons are somewhat, maybe unimportant. Companies are creating and selling healthcare products, including technology, 
to hospitals all the time. Companies like Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson are what's giving us our vaccines right now, and that has been a huge help in attacking the pandemic. Yeah, okay. So Pfizer and Moderna both stand to make upwards of $15 billion each from producing the COVID vaccine. So, you know, what do they care, right, about individual people's lives? But, I mean, I mean, that's great. The vaccines are absolutely necessary right now. My only concern here is that big corporations are taking on this do-good, benevolent role when they're really just as evil as they've always been. And, okay, I'll make... I'll make two basic observations here. First, vaccines are being priced well above what many developing countries can afford. And second, vaccine production was a race to see who could create a formula first. So considering that there was a limited window of testing and that they're not even FDA approved yet, uh, they've only been authorized for emergency use right now. You know, seeing who crosses the finish line first is not the best way to approach a matter of health, in my opinion. This might have even delayed the vaccine progress or, or efficacy or effectiveness, too, when you think about it. So consider the amount that we learned about the virus in such a short period of time, in the early months when it was spreading around the world. That was absolutely the result of full international cooperation in the scientific community. So in terms of vaccine production, we're looking at some pretty old school mindsets, like a like a race to see who can get there first and to see who can get the most money. Well, maybe not even an old school mindset, just a neoliberal mindset. Okay, so now we're kind of dancing around the idea of ethics. What do we consider right? What are we willing to tolerate in the name of long-term survival? Things like that. So I want to take this idea and revert it back to the conversation on technology. What are the ethical concerns of and maybe the moral barriers to digitizing the healthcare system? We already talked about some of the uh, potential positives of doing this, but what opportunities do you see for maybe a neoliberal takeover of digitized health services? When taking it to, into the perspective of people itself, these are kind of the first thoughts I had in mind. As it's usually the case in our world of internet and digitization, people might have major concerns about their privacy. Patient information is supposed to be undisclosed and private, but we can never really be too sure to what extent some or all of that data is being protected. Sharing patient information may be useful for medical research purposes. However, it sort of puts a price on our information again, just as our ad preferences provide companies knowledge of what to produce, advertise, and sell to us based on our interests. This again goes back to the conversation of the value of morals in a cause that's meant to benefit a lot of people. Another one I think about is uh, the efficacy of care. With all that stored data on so many patients, our information is at risk of becoming just another number or stat. Humans become variables. Digitization can also create or increase the barriers between forming close, meaningful relationships with our own caregivers. If we're just another face paired to a list of data, we lose a bit of that human-to-human -human connection. Likewise, if you remove the caregiver completely and replace it with, like, AI or, you know, robot doctor, we lose that bond entirely. So on one end, taking out the human factor in caregiving removes that human error and bias that could that either the patient or the doctor could have, but it also eliminates being cared after on a more personal and emotional level. Because, you know, we're all humans. We're here to take care of each other, right? So unless our doctors are, you know, cute and squishy like the Disney Baymax character, I'm not sure if the majority of people would be very excited about having a robotic doctor. You make a really good point about generalized care instead of personalized care. Someone else that worries me is that surveillance and big data collection could be used to further divide social cleavages. So it's really important that we proceed carefully. Otherwise, changes that aren't thought out and made in haste might accidentally become the new standard of care. Yeah, no, Ryan, you raise a really interesting observation about the potential for a, a larger surveillance state. And this is a concern shared by Dr. Dan McQuillan at the University of London. 
He writes about the interference of technological solutionism and AI in healthcare, as well as the necropolitical neural networks needed to justify mass casualties during the COVID-19 pandemic. Solutionism is what we might call an easy fix to a really, really complex problem or a superficial address of systemic wounds. Things like charity or performative activism are respectively band-aids for poverty and social injustice, which would be more adequately addressed by a robust welfare system or mutual aid projects. So in terms of technological solutionism in the wake of a pandemic, this looks like proximity tracking apps and uh, digital immunity passports in place of proper allocation of epidemiological resources or maybe even a total reevaluation of state priorities. McQuillan writes that technological innovation does the job of diverting attention from questions about underlying material and structural conditions. So if that's the case, if we're not really solving the problem, why are we so obsessed with solutionism? Well, it makes things neat. Solutionism implies that there are solutions, and the public seems to be really into solving problems, I guess. It's it's just this love of convenience that we have. Like, we love convenience to the highest degree. Like, it's not enough that you can go out for coffee, and, you know, maybe that's more convenient than making it yourself. But, you know, over time, we also have come to expect the extra convenience of a little disposable cup to throw away when you're done. We're all about problem solving, but only if it doesn't inconvenience us. Thinking about it from the state perspective, solutionism makes things more governable. Historically, humans kind of have always been mesmerized by this idea of being better, more advanced. Uh, we have seen that play out in religions and architecture and inventions and in medicine and in systems of government governance especially. The United States' representative democracy, for example, has come a long way since the democracy of ancient Greece. The drive behind solutionism can vary from scenario to scenario, but what might be applicable to all of them is this concept of governability and control. When an organized entity such as the state can offer a solution to an entire population such as its citizens, it's better equipped to mandate orders to ensure that those problems are being solved. And that just reemphasizes that factor of control. Right, Andrea, this relates back to the conversation in episode two on corporations being the newest way for states to exercise power. So instead of spending the adequate time and resources necessary to actually redress these problems, companies are profiting on quick fixes. And the other thing that I'm considering here is, is more of a psychological approach to solutionism. I mean, there are so many horrible things going on in the world right now, and they are all over the news. I, I can't remember the last time I saw a positive news story, right? There's social justice protests, of course, the pandemic, and I don't know anybody whose lives haven't been affected by COVID in one way or another. There's also the political ramifications that are still playing out from the 2020 election and all of that chaos. So solutionism might come in and say, we can make at least one of these problems easier. We can make it go away. And I absolutely understand why that's so appealing, at least to the, from the citizen's perspective. So if at least something is being done, then that makes life a little bit easier. We can look at this from a global perspective as well. The competitive nature of neoliberalism doesn't stop at the borders because we live in a globalized world. Not only are U.S. companies competing against U.S. companies, for some reason, it's like the U.S. is competing against China and Russia and every other country. It's like machismo, American machismo. Oh, for sure. It's an ego thing that's like that totally ties back to the psychological aspect of solutionism. But that's absolutely like a a neoliberal perspective. Like we're always reaching upwards and and forwards trying to get more to be the best and that doesn't just apply between corporations. That's literal states adopting these competitive measures as well. Who can make the most money is has the most influence, right? Has the most power, I guess. That's the name of the game. So we came up with quite a few answers here, but the one thing that's standing out to me is that they all seem to point to this desired generalizability of these things that seem to be ungeneralizable. AI is 
the god of generalization. It feeds on data in order to predict the future and to intervene in these undesirable realities. McQuillan writes that the imperceptible mutation of the coronavirus in our cells conspires with data science to produce anticipatory governance, where numerical projections of the future become the rationale for state actions in the present moment. So that's all well and good. AI has the potential to be helpful, as we discussed earlier. But it becomes problematic the moment that AI is applied to people and social problems. It undoubtedly reproduces data biases, which can lead to stereotyping and increases pressure on the existing social fractures that have been so starkly highlighted by COVID-19. To put this into context, consider that Singapore's highly rated Bluetooth contact tracing app ignored thousands of low-status immigrant workers. And there were similar issues found with the Polish mobile app that requires COVID patients to regularly take selfies to prove that they're inside. We found similar issues with China's color-coded smartphone health rating program, which tracks who's allowed to leave the house and who isn't. So in this way, in the name of public health as well, AI becomes an engine of systemic neglect. And more generally, in the name of neoliberal optimization, AI becomes fully necropolitical. It's an object of governance designed to let people die, to determine whose life is not worthy enough. Everyone forgotten about by AI and everybody that's maybe purposely left behind by it, they're left to die. And the only thing scarier to me than giving the government the power to decide who dies is giving that power to a self-learning machine. Well, those might essentially be the same thing. In a commentary piece analyzing causes of surveillance capitalism, author Raziel Dror talks about how AI technologies in the digital age erode our rights to free will and sanctuary. Here, in reference to Shoshana Zuboff's work, surveillance capitalism is defined as an economic system premised on mining human behavior data to determine our preferences, predict our desires, and uncover our weaknesses so that platforms and advertisers can more persuasively nudge, coax, tune, and hurt us into buying goods and services to maximize big tech profits. So this kind of detracts from the healthcare talk, but basically AI works in service of big tech and neoliberal capitalism, not only to surveil citizens, but to make a profit off of them as well. Yeah, you're absolutely getting in the right direction there. And that reminds me of an article that detailed how the tech solutions for coronavirus take the surveillance state to the next level. So in line with what you're discussing, in order for the government or AI to distinguish whose life is valuable enough, there has to be some sort of surveillance in place, right? The author, Evgeny Morozov, he spent years studying the political and social implications of digital technology. He argues that COVID is opening up this window of opportunity for the state or corporations, or as we've been arguing, probably both together to increase their hold over citizens. And surveillance capitalism is how they achieve that. I'm, I'm a little bit confused. Considering that the goal of neoliberalism is to reduce government control and make room for the economy to operate freely however it wants, isn't more government control counterintuitive? Like, I, I can't tell if this benefits corporations more or government more. Again, this all gets back to everything we talked about in episode two. And it's, you're right, it's so counterintuitive. But the more we dive into this, the more I'm starting to think that neoliberalism was never about economics. It was always about the state desperately trying to stay relevant and stay legitimate. You know, the surveillance state was implemented in the name of national security after 9-11, and it was an expression of the state designed to say, you still need the government because only the government can protect you from these dangerous foreign outsiders. And this kind of protectionist language is also tied to the same kind of discourse used by Donald Trump, even though he also pursued a highly neoliberal agenda. So both Trump and the surveillance state, which was established after 9-11 and has been maintained through digital technology, they fully embrace their necropolitical functions. They determine who's in the in-group and who's in the out-group. The people relegated to the out-group to bear life to the state of exception, they're all without rights and without grievability. 
So Dror and Mazarov are making the same claim that McQuellen made. We need to be extremely careful not to let AI or any sort of solutionist band-aid take over as our primary way to address these problems. So we need to take the same amount of caution in preserving our democracy against such solutionist and surveillance practices. Referencing Zuboff again, Dror notes that we lack sovereignty online given the extreme asymmetries of knowledge and power between surveillance capitalists and users. So this goes a long way in explaining why or how these powerful entities are able to intervene in our lives so easily. Surveillance capitalism then gives corporations such immense power to predict our every need and want, to dominate every sphere of our life, the public, the private, and political. From there, it's incredibly easy to manipulate us, to bend people to their will. And in the midst of all the panic surrounding COVID, these quick fixes seem really appealing, even though they only hurt us in the long run. We need well-thought-out solutions that are going to help everyone in the long run, not just quick cash grabs like we tend to see. So I think we can all agree that the placement of the economy at the center of our lives itself is really the root cause for many of our problems. What can we reorient our lives around instead of economics that bring us together instead of driving us apart? Really simple answer, and we've kind of been hinting at this throughout the conversation. Care. What we're struggling with in the neoliberal age is a lack of care. The pandemic has exposed the violence manifested by late-stage capitalism, which makes us unable to care for people, and it encourages us to restrict our care to only ourselves and the people we know. There's this quote from a book I read recently called The Care Collective, and it emphasizes this point. The crisis of care has become particularly acute over the last 40 years as governments accepted neoliberal capitalism's near-ubiquitous positioning of profit-making as the organizing principle of life. So the authors highlight that self-interest thrives in contexts like these because with all of our ties to dependence on markets, we constantly feel insecure and fragile. And this directs our caring instincts towards people like us, creating or perpetuating hostilities between groups. Economics at the center of life means instability, fear, protectionism, and the ruthless dismantling of communities that enable us to be there for one another. So why is care so undervalued? <laughs> Short answer, care is women's work. Oh boy, can you elaborate? Well, okay, care work has been traditionally carried out in the household. So in the world of economics, it's called reproductive labor. That is, cooking, cleaning, homemaking, taking care of the elderly, it's considered unproductive, thus making it largely unpaid work, and it's certainly undervalued. Caring for each other brings no tangible benefit to the market unless that care work is commodified, as in the case of, for example, nursing homes. And the thing that's really ironic here is that workers in the care industry tend to need those jobs so that they have enough money to purchase the material resources that they need to care for their own families. And this tends to even further deepen some of the structural inequalities we've been talking about, especially along race and gender lines. So essentially, care isn't beneficial to the market. But what is beneficial is the blossoming demand for self-care products. So things like face creams and body washes are marketed as, you know, nourishment for the soul. And not only does this commercialize care practices, but it individualizes them as well. The Care Collective notes that the commodification of care is undermining our communal care resources and caring capacities by implanting market logics into traditional non-market realms. This couldn't be any more clear than in the case of healthcare, as we've been discussing. So what the Care Collective proposes, then, is that we adopt universal care practices, that we make care the priority in all spheres, from family to community to planet. And we've talked extensively about several topics and the ways in which their benevolent functions might be refracted by neoliberal goals and economic-centric worldviews. So what does it look like to live in a caring world? 
how can we reorient corporations and the economy and markets such that they act in service of care rather than profit? Well, right off the bat, I'm skeptical of whether or not caring corporations is a possibility. Corporations are so appealing because they offer the strongest protection to its owners from personal liability. So corporations evade responsibility. Then if we have a way to ensure accountability, we can improve the caring capacity of the corporation. Well, what does that look like? First things first, okay, uh, reconnect the consumer with the producer. Make the producer accountable to the consumer. Theoretical market logic centers on the point of equilibrium between suppliers and demanders. Traditionally, this idea has been viewed as finding the point of intersection between the two curves, which would show the amount of product that producers are willing to manufacture and that consumers are willing to purchase at any given price and time. So again, the central premise here is profit. How much money can the producer make and how much money can the consumer save? We could reimagine the consumer-producer relationship by reorienting the point of equilibrium around ability and need rather than supply and demand. With the corporations attuned to the needs of the consumers, we can also change how we view scarcity. There's a need that corporations can fill, a scarcity problem that they can fix. So instead of scarcity forcing us to overly produce goods out of fear, it can motivate corporations and consumers to partner together. Another way to ensure accountability, or at least increase it, is to have corporations adopt social goals rather than economic ones. Instead of seeking to sell products and boost the profit margin quarter after quarter, a corporation could produce and distribute only eco-friendly products while working actively to stop the destruction of rainforests, for example. Alana, you discussed having corporations fill a void or fulfill a need in society. This is just another way to give purpose to corporations so that they become agents of care rather than profit machines. And along similar lines, in order to achieve a caring market system and a caring economy in general, we have to reconceptualize not only our vocabulary when discussing these things, but also their purpose. Ilana, as you mentioned earlier, markets only allocate caring responsibilities on the basis of purchasing power. For example, branded self-care commodities or hiring supposed care workers to routinely administer medication to elderly patients without any regard for the patient as a person. So the first thing is to reevaluate priorities so that we can restrict the power of capitalist markets and instead boost the power of caring ones. Right. So Marxism tends to narrow the economic and sometimes even the social to market phenomena alone. This goes back to our earlier conversation on delineating between reproductive and productive laboring. And this distinction is made without any regard for the fact that without this so-called woman's work, society pretty much falls apart. And the tasks required in order to maintain care are not easy. Everything from child rearing to hospice care can be difficult mentally and physically as well. And care practices are not optional. They are absolutely required. They are a societal necessity. The distinction between reproductive laborers and productive laborers carries with it the same connotations as the relationship between laborers and capitalists. We see similar hierarchies of power and value, and even similar undertones of exploitation, all while ignoring the physical necessity of those undervalued people. We need to first push back against these oppressive and hierarchy-building systems. Only then can we start to build new institutions and structures equipped with caring capacities and equitable alternatives to the capitalist market. Given that, what concrete options do we have to make this a reality? Cooperatives, municipalism, literally any way to socialize and democratize our markets and our economy. Most importantly, markets should be locally embedded. They should be closer to the community. That's how we facilitate the ties between consumer and producer and how we hold corporations accountable. We also have a unique opportunity here to make these changes a reality because we are situated in the digital age. So what are some examples of this? How do we recondition our digital technologies as instruments of care? And what does digital tech look like if it's in service of care rather than the market? Well, information and communications technology makes something like energy cooperatives possible. 
So by upgrading to a digitally equipped electricity grid, not only are we able to accommodate multiple forms of renewable energy simultaneously, which has huge positive benefits to the environment, but communities would also be able to make decisions about energy use and distribution. So what I'm trying to say with this example is that caring starts with creating a community and being able to generate civic participation at the most micro level possible. Uh, Here's another quote from the Care Collective. Caring for the world involves remaking and democratizing all international institutions and networks so that they facilitate the redistribution of the world's resources, enabling all states and their populations to build the caring and sharing infrastructure that they need to thrive. Digital technology is inherently networked, not only in its physical infrastructure, but in the way that it enables us to communicate with each other. Interconnectedness is a fundamental pillar of democracy, too. Reimagining technology as a locus of democratic participation could have huge implications for how we envision the world. Right. Digital technology has been enabling decentralization and breaking down access barriers all over the world. But Estonia, like I mentioned earlier, is probably the leader in using digital technology to increase and enhance civic capacity, which is how I think we accomplish care. E-Estonia might not be perfect right now, ironically, because there is a barrier to digital technology, but for the majority of Estonians, government, financial, and social services are now just implemented on their devices. The Estonian government gave a lot of power back to people by decentralizing and streamlining state services and institutions, giving them ownership yet ease of access to personal information, and just generally giving people more equal access. That's democracy, that's care, and that's taking a step further from fascism and totalitarianism than any nation in the digital age that I can think of. Now, Estonia's population is just over a million people, so it's hard to say how it would scale up, you know, for example, to the U.S.'s 350 million plus population. Maybe not that big, but well over 300 million. Nevertheless, I think Estonia could provide a really good model for using technology to help people instead of expand the economy, mostly in decentralization. Yes, I I love that you brought up Estonia again. And also in terms of decentralization, this is pretty reminiscent of liquid democracy. So here is a quote from a video that explains what it is. Political action is not agitation. It's construction. One of the core questions about governance is who gets to represent whom, right? Um, So our proposal is to implement a liquid democracy protocol where we can choose different people to represent us for different topics, right? So I can choose someone to represent me for matters regarding healthcare because I know that they are a doctor that's been working, he's been working or she's been working in the public healthcare um, system for 35 years. I trust she, I trust her with my vote. So we can have a bottom-up dynamic representation that surfaces social leadership. That's called liquid democracy. That was Pia Mancini explaining what liquid democracy looks like. She goes on to expand this concept beyond voting within a country to talk about global representation. For example, she's Argentinian, but she says that Costa Rica is more progressive with their energy policy. Why couldn't a Costa Rican representative earn her vote? Because, she says, we live in a world designed for nation states. But this can be changed in the digital era. We are no longer confined to the physical world. In the digital world, possibilities are endless. We don't have to drop off our ballots anymore. We could potentially be voting from halfway around the world. Democracy is probably the most useful tool that we have for collectively determining how we want to shape our world. By decentralizing power, we grant ourselves the resources to build the caring and sharing infrastructure that we need to thrive. I don't want to be a negative Nancy here, but caring contradicts profit incentives and sharing contradicts individualism. So I don't really know if the neolibs are going to be okay with liquid democracy. What we need to be cautious of in taking democracy to the digital world has a lot to do with the people using it and the technology itself, too. As mentioned in the last episode, to be a dutiful democratic citizen, you must do your research diligently. 
There's so much information out there nowadays, and we easily confuse fact with fiction. And there's the issue of confirmation bias too. We need to make sure that in order to use digitization effectively in our democratic practices, we are doing our homework. Censorship is another issue that is often brought up with platforms like Twitter that for the most part allow virtually anything to be published on the app. I think all of this applies to the concept of care too. If we are becoming increasingly dependent on the internet for medical questions, we need to be wary that for one, not all the information out there is correct and two, that maybe not all viable info is available to us. So online democracy is a great idea, so long as the people using it are doing their part in discussing, sharing, and exploring relevant information and multiple perspectives. Well, I think that's where care can really help us. In communities, we don't have to stick to the same individual notions that are so common to us. We can imagine a world where we have local meetings or discussions or clubs that people are excited to participate in. In an ideal scenario, each of these people would be educated enough to contribute a unique perspective. Relating this back to our current situation, we have to remember that not all forms of connection or community are even possible for us right now because of the coronavirus. People at high risk, people who are still unvaccinated, they might not have access to the same kinds of care as they normally might. We've talked extensively in this episode about how COVID has exacerbated inequalities, and I'd argue that this extends to access to care as well. So what do care, community, and civics look like in conjunction in the context of COVID? That's probably the most important question that's been raised this entire series. You know, we briefly touched on grievability and bare life. So for political thinkers, obviously, they discuss these concepts in terms of politics, right? Agamben says that bare life is excluded from the political order and bare life is anyone who can be killed with impunity. But it seems to me that worse than leaving you without a political identity, it also leaves you without access to care, without a social identity. Of course, there almost seem to be different levels of bare life brought to fruition through the strange obsession that neoliberal capitalism has with creating hierarchies. And so there are different levels of denying care or different levels of lacking care. So we have to consider what groups don't receive the care that they need. This kind of reminds me of environmental justice theory. It's the concept of helping out the people and the places that need care the most. There are lots of ways that we can determine how resources are allocated that's not determined on money. Right now, we generally aren't giving these resources to the people or things that need it. How do we fix this then? Miriam Tickton is a professor of anthropology at the New School for Social Research. Formerly the director of gender studies, she advocates for a feminist commons, which insists that horizontal forms of sociality are necessary for survival, and that the only way to achieve well-being for ourselves is to fight for the well-being of others. Tying this back to the work of Agamben, essentially this means that the dominant groups in denying care to others are also creating a care vacuum for themselves. So sort of the opposite of you can't care for others unless you care for yourself. Right. Tickton highlights three experiments of coming together in the time of COVID, one of which is masked mobs in, in reference to the BLM protests. The word mob, interestingly, stems from the word mobility or, or movement. She writes that walking together produces political possibilities. Surprisingly, Tickton praises face masks, saying that they help to produce unity and that they create this unified body in which the focus lies on the collective cause rather than the individual. Tickton's approach to this theme is unique because a lot of scholarly work thus far has viewed masks as individualizing, as, as fostering anonymity in a negative way. Tina Sika, lecturer in Media, Culture, and Heritage at the University of Newcastle, has an essay on feminist materialism and its relevance to the current pandemic. She explains how ordinary objects like face masks have agency, which has been enacted by COVID. To Sika, masks are a material semiotic entity that communicate a sense of personal responsibility and seriousness to others. They act as a boundary between self and other. If, as suggested in Sika's essay, the face is a locus of responsibility, 
Masks disrupt the relationality of the face, changing how we interact with one another. Then, to bring in a third feminist writer, Tickton's discourse on face coverings as a way to build community and remove reliance on individualism is reminiscent of Jane Bennett's vital materialism. Similar to Sika, Bennett also talks about agential activation of things, be it a rock, a worm, or even a mob. If we view mobs not as a collection of individuals, but as an assemblage, as a singular entity with a vital force that exceeds that of its individual parts, the power and political potential of the mob is exponentially increased. Bennett describes assemblages as groupings of diverse elements, forces coalescing to produce an effect greater than the individual effect of a singular agent. She also questions whether notions of assemblages could halt the workings of more nefarious forms of state power. This is largely applicable to Tickton's discussions of mobs and mobility as politically potent. In a broader sense, though, the convening of the community of diverse agents unifying in a collective, acting as one body against forces of violence and oppression, can rise above the suppressibility of singular agents. Essentially, coming together physically and not just digitally is a way to foster democracy and to care for each other at the same time. So just to clarify then, are you arguing that a physical community is more important or effective than a digital one? Well, not necessarily. What these feminist thinkers are offering us is a vision of the world where community already exists and it exists everywhere in all forms. Reimagining ordinary things, including digital technology, as, as agents with vibrancy, agents with political potential, or, or as realized actors in the social world, these things have the potential to increase the power of communities. So we want to focus on how digital technology can be leveraged to enhance our connections with one another because they are so ingrained in our lives and our world already. In doing so, technology becomes a platform for democratic or political life, for which civic participation is absolutely crucial. And using digital technology to form global communities to increase the people we are able to connect with is, is a huge component in this. Right, and it refocuses the concept of care, like we've been talking about, brings us all together, and it makes, instead of the economy the center of our lives everyone else is the center of our lives we're making the world and this togetherness and I love that quote the walking together it makes yep. all that the most important thing right community is so incredibly potent as is care and when I say the word potent I am thinking of something compact like in a tight space and it's it's bottled up and it's ready to explode I pretty distinctly remember Wendy Brown saying that a big challenge that we're faced with is whether or not capitalism can be put back in the bottle in a globalized world and a financialized world. That stuck with me because I'd like to see capitalism stored away and care released in its place. We, we've talked about uh, care and community in conjunction with uh, the home and families and health and in, in terms of economics and corporations and markets, and then finally in relation to democracy and political life. I, I came into this project with all of these ideas sort of separated in my head, and I was desperately trying to put together a coherent argument that could address all of them. But, I mean, it turns out that it really wasn't that difficult. Um, not to be meta here, but... The uh, for for the majority of like episodes one and two, and then even the first part of this episode on healthcare, we were engaged with our topics as they exist right now. You know, neoliberalism dominates, corporations reign, and <laughs> the healthcare system sucks. <laughs> but what I think is so powerful about this discussion on care is that we finally been able to lift ourselves, uh, uh, to, to take ourselves away from this reality. Um, we're no longer looking at the world through neoliberal eyes. So it was relatively easy to find a solution. I mean, at least in the hypothetical, which is honestly something that I've never really been able to do. 
You're right. It's extremely difficult to break away from the dominant order of thinking. That's one of my big, big frustrations. Right. I have never, ever walked away from a conversation on capitalism that's left me feeling this positive before. And I think that says a lot about the ideas that we've been bouncing around. We we have the capacity to break down neoliberal barriers if we move forward with care in mind rather than the economy. And I think that's a really good note to leave this season off with. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Principium Season 2.